Well, we've uh, come to the end of this part of our journey through the book of Exodus and to the final part of the covenant-making process that we've been seeing in the last few chapters, Exodus 19 through to 24. The Israelites have heard the terms of the covenant, uh, how they are expected to live as God's holy people. Now, uh, at the end of chapter 23 and into 24, he he reiterates his promise to them to bring them into the promised land, uh, the, the land that he promised to their forefather, Abraham. And with this promise comes this solemn call to reject all the so-called gods and idols of that land and to worship him alone. Did you notice that uh, he promised to do all the work of removing the people from Canaan, although it won't be an instant thing. They will have to live for some time with the Canaanites uh, side by side, uh, them worshipping the Lord uh, while their neighbours, the Canaanites, are worshipping their false gods, uh, a bit like they did in Egypt, except in Canaan they'll be a free people. But because of what they experienced in Egypt when the Lord showed himself to be the only true God who defeated, who made nothing of the gods of Egypt, they should have the same confidence now in regard to the Canaanite gods and not be led astray into worship of idols. In verse 32 he says, You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They are exclusively the Lord's covenant people. They belong to him alone. So the only covenant that they need is with him. Now, who is this uh, angel that the Lord will send them that he mentions in 23.20? He's clearly a significant figure because not only will he guard them and bring them safely to the land, but he also has authority authority to speak to them and to command their obedience and authority to withhold forgiveness when they disobey. These are two things that normally we would think that God alone has the prerogative to do. In fact, this angel has the full authority of God, signified by that phrase, my name is in him. Now, it's easy to speculate too much about angels and their roles in the Old Testament, but in this place it's clear who this angel is. See what Paul tells the Corinthians when he's reminding them of the Exodus story. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, we saw that symbolism of the rock which Moses struck with his staff and from which the water flowed to, to quench the thirst of the people. And that rock pointed to 
Christ. Jesus called people to come to him and to drink from the living waters that flow from him. And these waters speak of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus pours out upon us and who brings us into the life of the Father and the Son. But see that there's a double symbolism used here. Because Paul says that this spiritual rock followed them and this rock was Christ. Now, when Jesus called people to follow him, it was a call to accompany him, to walk with him, share in his journey, to do life with him. That's what discipleship was in the first century. You were with a rabbi if you were his disciple 24-7. As you learned, uh, you did so as you heard him teach, as you observed his actions, as you participated with him in what he did. So the call to follow wasn't a call to walk behind, but to walk with. And this is what the angel will do as he guards the Israelites and brings them to the promised land. Uh, there's a reference in Isaiah 63, 9 that uh, calls him the angel of his presence. He was the mediator of the actual presence of the Lord to the people. He was actually Christ himself, a, a pre-incarnate revelation of the Son. Now, we've already encountered Christ in this way in a number of places through Genesis and Exodus, uh, where he is called the angel of the Lord. The first time, significantly, was when he came to Hagar back in Genesis 16. That was uh, way back in August last year, so let's remind ourselves of the story. Hagar was Sarah's servant. She'd been given to Abraham when Sarah and Abraham were trying to make God's promises of a son come to pass in their own steam. Hagar was pregnant with Abraham's son, Ishmael. But Sarah became jealous and she treated Hagar harshly and Hagar fled out into the wilderness. Uh, interestingly, the same wilderness that the Israelites travelled through when they were going to Mount Sinai. Genesis 16, 7-9 says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Water, again. The spring on the way to Shur, the desert of Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. And then a bit later, and so she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Now her experience is echoed on other occasions when people encounter this figure who is firstly identified as the angel of the Lord, but then by the time the encounter has concluded, they realise that They've actually had an encounter with the Lord himself. This word angel in both the Old and New Testaments means literally messenger. Jesus 
he's the ultimate messenger of God because he is the word that would be made flesh. When we encounter him, we encounter the triune God in all his fullness. Only when we know him are we able to truly say, I know that God sees me and cares for me and he will bring me to the destination that he has for me. That's what Hagar realised when he sent her back to Sarah. And it's what the Israelites will realise when he brings them safely through the desert to the land. God could have simply said here, I will guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention and obey my voice. Do not rebel against me, for I will not pardon your transgression. Because that would have been just as true. Yet he doesn't. He deliberately states it using this angel of the Lord terminology. So that it will be another one of these signs that point forward to the day when the Father will send the Son to bring us safely to our destination. Let's see how Jesus used this kind of language when he was praying for his disciples just before he went to the cross. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. See how Jesus has kept them in your name, which you have given me. In other words, uh, my name is in him. And in doing so, he's kept them safe. He's brought them to their destination, to the Father himself. And it's important for us to take note of that. Our destination is not heaven. Our destination is the Father. What's important is not the geographical location, but the fact that whatever place we're in, whether it's here in Australia, whether it's the Israelites out wandering around the desert of Shur. God is with us in Christ Jesus. That's your true destination. That's your true location. No matter where you may be in all creation, your real location is in Christ. And in him, you are seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's what the promised land was all about. Yes, it would be a geographical location in which they would live where they would know the Lord's blessing of their bread and water as he says uh, where they would know health and fruitfulness but in so far as they lived in the light of his abiding presence among them and in so far as they had him as the Lord their God with no other gods before him that was their true destination, their true location. Now let's remind ourselves again of the nature of this covenant. The Lord is entering into this binding relationship with Israel. 
based on unbreakable promises. He has declared his intention to be their God, to walk with them and dwell among them, to make them his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As his holy people, he then requires them to live out their holiness. As uh, Ephesians 4, 1 to 3 puts it, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What was their calling? To be his treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. So walk in the manner of uh, worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to main the, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's, that's the fruit of one who's walking in obedience to God's perfect uh, law of love. And we heard the Israelites state, uh, at the beginning, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And here they say it again, here in 24 verse 3, all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So all that remains now is for this covenant to be sealed with blood. A covenant-making ceremony always involved the shedding of blood. As animals were sacrificed, it was a way of saying, if I do not remain true to my promises I've made today, may my blood be on my own head. May what has been done to this animal be done to me if I am not true to my word. By binding the covenant partners to their promises, the blood also bound them to one another because they participated together in this sacrifice. The shed blood, uh, as we see here, is, is thrown in two directions, half of it against the altar, which represents the Lord, and half on the people. The Lord and his people are now one because they are both stained with the blood of the covenant. Then next, something remarkable happens. To this point, the Lord had appeared on the mountain in thick cloud and darkness with smoke and thunder and, and lightning. Only Moses and Aaron could ascend the mountain into the cloud while the people had to keep their distance. They weren't even allowed to touch the side of the mountain. But now that the covenant has been sealed in the blood of this sacrifice, both Moses and Aaron, along with Aaron's sons, representing the line of priests that would come from him, and all of the 70 elders, representing all the tribes and all the clans of Israel, they all go up the mountain where what was previously unthinkable happens. They actually see God. This thick, dreadful darkness of the cloud is lifted and they see the Lord under whose feet is what looks like this pavement of sapphire, clear as the sky. The, the cloud has gone and there's nothing but brilliance and clarity. They've been brought into the throne room 
of the Lord, the King of all creation. They've been brought in to see him in all his holy majesty and power and authority. What's what's more remarkable is that in this place, the first half of verse 11 tells us that he did not lay his hand on the chief men of Israel. In chapter 19, Moses was told, do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. But now the priests and the elders of the people have walked right into the presence of the Lord without fear of him breaking out against them. They're they're able to look on his face and not die. What's even more remarkable is what happens in the second half of verse 11. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord has not only welcomed them into his throne room, but he's prepared a meal for them and they feast with him in his presence. A covenant wasn't complete without a meal. The the covenant partners would sit down together and have a shared meal. They would celebrate their unity and fellowship that had been established and sealed with blood. And the meal would include the flesh of the sacrifice, which would further establish their unity because they ate the one flesh from which had been drawn the blood that had sealed the covenant. Eating together was the ultimate expression of trust, of fellowship, of expressing a bond that was like that of a family. Last week in preparation for communion, I read Hebrews 4 verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And a bit later in Hebrews, we read, Let us draw near with a a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That, That sprinkling there is a reference to the sprinkled blood of the sacrifice. So our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The blood of the sacrifice there on Mount Sinai gave the elders of Israel the confidence to draw near to the Lord, to see him and to have fellowship with him. We we must not miss the astounding significance of this. This short statement in verse 11, it's one of the most profound, one of the most revolutionary statements in the whole Bible, what a thing for it to be said of you, they ate, they they beheld God and ate and drank. The writer, he, he even uses two different words for beheld in verse 10 and verse 11, as if he's trying to, to drive home the incredible confronting thing that's happening here. This is the God who later says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
And yet here are these people so close to the Lord that they are able to gaze upon him while they eat and drink with him. How could this be apart from the blood of the covenant that has brought them together? Jesus has made a new covenant with us and he has sealed this covenant in blood, his own blood. He has pushed aside the thick cloud of God's wrath that hung over us and he's brought us into the presence of the Father whose throne room is also a banqueting hall. Hebrews 12 tells us, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember the blood of Abel? Abel was murdered by his brother, and the Lord said, Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It cried out for vengeance, for justice, for judgment. Jesus' sprinkled blood cries out a better word. It cries out mercy, forgiveness, grace, restoration, welcoming in. It cries out that we can now come with confidence and we can can behold God. We can see his face. That remarkable, shocking statement, they beheld God and ate and drank, is true of everyone whose faith is in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus invites us in. Jesus ushers us into the throne room of God the Father. And in his presence we eat and drink. Not not mere physical food. Our food is Christ himself. Our drink is the Spirit with whom he baptises us. Jesus Christ has truly been the angel of the Lord who has guarded us until we reach our destination. Our destination in the embrace, in the throne room, in the banqueting hall of the Father. We're going to conclude our service today with Uh, a song that expresses that uh, wonderful confidence and that wonderful uh, unity we have with uh, God 
our Father in this covenant, in love and in grace, abundant and free. Almighty God, threesome has caused it to be. God dwells in a man. A man dwells in God forever together through covenant blood. O greatest of wonders and deepest of joys, that I, a child of wrath, became a child of God. In his own loving choice, in Christ upon his cross, the judgment went through. On him I have believed, forgiveness have received. Behold, I am made new.